Hey everybody, looks like it's just me again. So a little while ago, Mo and I covered the merger of Medi of Dubai and Helium Health of Nigeria. We uh, remarked on how this kind of created a new M&A paradigm for the region, and we tried to guess the founder's motivation for doing such a thing. And as luck would have it, uh, Haro Saradi of uh, Medi uh, agreed to sit down with us and discuss the merger as well as the venture ecosystem in the GCC in Africa. Honestly, it's just an extremely insightful account of the region's tech scene, and I'm as excited as he is because uh, we both kind of feel that this sets a new precedent for how things are going to, you know, really change in the coming years. Like there are new ways to move forward for ventures trying to achieve scale. Um, you know, just mergers often happen because companies either need help surviving or thriving. And one of the things we mentioned in this interview is. Uh, startups sometimes come to this point where they have to make a decision. Do we build to grow or do we buy to grow? Uh, a lot of people active in emerging markets like the GCC, like the Middle East, North Africa region, like Sub-Saharan Africa, the idea is typically to build mainly because there aren't that many targets to buy. And the other issue being that capital markets aren't sufficiently equipped um, to provide the tools necessary for such an acquisition. However, as evidenced by this interview, and by the account given by the founder, things are changing. So mergers happen either, like I said, to help a company survive or to thrive. And in this example, I think this is very, very clearly the latter. I think Helium and Medi both have a very bright future ahead of them as a combined entity. I'll leave it to Harris to enlighten us. So enjoy. Haris, you there, man? Yeah, I'm here. Haris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You know, it, it's not every day that I read about um, M&A going on the GCC region on TechCrunch. So that was uh, very uplifting to see that the direction, you know, that, that, that the company, the uh, region is really heading in that direction. But I'll give you some context about why this piqued my interest. So first off, uh, in a previous life that I don't speak of very often, um, I was an investment banker in the region. And then in a life shortly after that life, I was also a venture capitalist in the region. And I've seen a lot of things happen with a lot of, um, you know, let's just say planned M&A that did not go well, but to see it A, actually go well and B, have it be featured in TechCrunch is something very, very new. So congratulations. Thank you. And again, this, this piqued my interest because I believe it's kind of showing a new paradigm for well, A, exits and B, growth strategies in the GCC area. But before we really get into that, I just want to hear from you. What is the genesis story of Medi? Where did this come from? And why is this what you're devoting your time to? Oh, okay, let's see. So so I think Medi initially started as a class project at Carnegie Mellon University. So Carnegie Mellon, by the way, in Qatar, not the Pittsburgh campus. So we have a campus back in Doha. So I was a student there. So in 2014, 2015, I was on my senior year project. And the purpose was like to build a website so that you can uh, you can kind of present it. So the purpose of entire so we never initially intended Medi to be as a startup or a business that we wanted to start. It was just essentially a class project that we were doing just to get an A. That was the entire objective to do that. 
Uh, so yeah, in our final class presentation, when we were actually presenting Medi, like demoing it, there was like a journalist in the room and then she wrote a story on us. The next day we have like 2000 people visiting the website and our servers are about to crash and we're trying as hard as possible to, to make sure AWS instance doesn't go down. And then we started getting a lot of uh, positive feedback and encouragement from different people and family. And then we realized, okay, this could be a little bit, you know, more than a class project. And I think from there, we kind of took on and started working on it. And then even when we started working on it for six, seven months, maybe even a year, we were working on it as a project, but, you know, we still didn't really figure it out. It's like, okay, this is going to be a startup. There's going to be a business model. We have to go raise venture funding and whatnot. It took us about a year, year and a half until we got our shit together and we realized, okay, we can do something about it. So, you know, that, that's pretty much the story. I mean, there isn't any massive inspiration behind it. It's just, it just happened to be in that situation. Interesting. And for the unaware or for people outside the region, can you describe what exactly Medi does on a day-to-day -day basis? Sure. Yeah. So we're essentially a Docker discovery product. So let's. So if you're living in a place like Qatar and UAE, it's pretty much a very expat-driven population. So you're usually probably here because you got a new job and you moved your family here, and now you probably have some sort of a health insurance, but you do not know which one is a good doctor. You don't. You don't know which one is a good dentist or which one is a good doctor for your kids. So you have health insurance. You want to find the best doctors near you who accepts who accepts your health insurance, who speaks your native language. So we give you a platform where people can go in there select the specialization, select the area, select the insurance and find a list of top rated doctors based on patient reviews and credentials. Find all the information about them, such as their residency, their fellowship, their number of years of experience, what kind of treatments can they do. All the information that you need to build the trust between the doctor and then help you book an appointment with them. So right now, if you want to book an appointment at a big hospital in Qatar and UAE, you have to call a hotline number and probably wait 20, 30 minutes to speak to an agent and go through the IVR. It's a pretty painful process. But instead of doing that, you can just go to medi.com and you know book a doctor and find all their information and instantly have it confirmed without actually having to speak to an agent. So the experience is much more seamless. Uh, so that's the value proposition for patients that we provide a very convenient way to find a really good doctor and book appointments with them. For healthcare providers, it's mainly a marketing tool. We help them attract new patients, improve their branding, and help them grow their business. Uh, so that's what pretty much Medi is at the moment. Interesting. So at its core, you're basically solving information asymmetry. Absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you used those terms, but yeah, absolutely. We're doing information asymmetry. That's a huge issue, especially in healthcare. Yeah, which I think really is is the selling point of most uh, marketplace or semi-marketplace models. It's just fixing information asymmetry. Pretty much, and especially in healthcare, because the problem in healthcare is that there are laggards when you look at the adoption curve when it comes to technology, right? So a lot of these, uh, even if you have these massive hospitals, they have a market, they have a website, but which is very gimmicky. They created that website like 10 years ago when the hospital launched, but they haven't updated it. They don't have all the information on their doctors or their clinics or their hours. So it's just, you know, even when you Google to find doctor information, you're just not going to find anything credible or anything accurate anywhere. And that's why the place like Medi a marketplace that gives you like accurate real-time information makes a lot of difference agreed absolutely uh also you know another reason to have information asymmetry solved is because in healthcare specifically the cost of getting false information or wrong information and acting incorrectly may be quite disastrous absolutely and but but, but here's the thing right and this is kind of like it's weird in a way because the, the problem that we were seeing before launching medi is that 
a lot of expats have health insurance so they would go shopping around for different doctors because you know they don't really have to incur that big of a cost their copay is very low so they would go to a pediatrician they don't like it they go to the second one they don't like it and then maybe they like the third one right so you can imagine that okay they're not really paying out of their pocket but they're spending so much time and they're costing so much money to health insurers this is essentially a big wasteful way of doing things and hence you know now with Medi, now you can find a really good doctor very likely from your first visit itself. So it just makes the entire process very, very efficient. Agreed. Agreed. So in the JCC, in my time investing in that region, um, you know, I saw a lot of uh, vertically built offerings. So again, just like the TechCrunch article said, there's, you know, Visita for, for appointment booking, Okadoc for telemedicine. Uh, Clinicy was basically the clinic's operating system. Um, in in a world where we're seeing more and more horizontal solutions, why do you think it is that the vertical solution makes the most sense in the GCC, at least up until now? I, I wouldn't say specific to GCC. I think the reason people go with vertical is like you need some sort of a wedge to get into the market, right? You cannot go with like a massive full suite of product and try to break into the market. It's just, it's too overwhelming. You do not have a strong strength to it. So I think way is it that every other visita as Okadoc or any other doctor booking product, the way a doctor booking is basically a wedge into the market. It's a way to get your foot in the door with the healthcare providers and build a relationship with them. And then once you have that stronghold build up, you want to start adding more value added products and kind of expand your vertical offering. So move into EMR, move into revenue cycle management and whatnot. And this is very classic strategy for any enterprise B2B driven product. So that's the way you have this, a very singular focused product that does the job very well. But once you now have, uh, you know, the relationship established, you want to start adding more value added products. And that's the reason why we're having this acquisition with Helium Health, because we've been working with a lot of these providers and we're giving them marketing solutions and they're happy, but we, we know very intimately that they're unhappy with their EMR. They're very unhappy with the vendors that they're working with. They have a huge issue with interoperability. So we're like, we know the problem very well. We also know how much can they potentially pay for it. We understand that, how they think about these things. And so if we were to have this product, that would massively increase our addressable market and we can really solve their problem. But, you know, this is not something we could build because that's not our core expertise. It requires a huge year, like years and years of R&D raising a lot of funding. So it's much better to go work with a company that has already done well. So, you know, that's why we're plugging in with Helium Health. And Helium Health is looking at us from exactly the same angle. They want to offer doctor booking to their existing providers. Interesting. Now I have to ask, and you can decline to answer this if you like, was the merger an idea of investors or the idea of the founders? Uh, was the founders completely. I, I actually informed my, I mean, I mean, I don't know if I should be saying this thing. I actually brought this to my board very late into the conversation. I was working with Helium for quite some time before we brought it up. So yeah, it was primarily founders. Interesting. And the yeah. board received it well from day one or was there a little pushback? No, actually board received it day one and uh, just board wanted to get more context because as you said, everyone reacted the same way as everyone would because you know, you're a company in GCC and you're trying to, be acquired by a company in Nigeria, not the other way around. So that was right. like a little bit of a shock. So everyone was like, hmm, we had never heard of them. And then they started looking more into it. They were all pleasantly surprised how great the company is. That's amazing. So, I mean, like you said, it was ultimately a, a decision to kind of join forces with someone else. I think every startup in their life cycle has this build versus buy moment. And out mm -hmm. of sheer necessity, um, build was the more common option in emerging markets, mainly because, you know, the infrastructure to buy and the options to buy weren't really there. So this feels like a turning point in the industry, doesn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. But it, here's another thing, and maybe this might be an unpopular opinion. I think a lot of these startup founders also have this bit of an issue with their egos where they're like, oh, we don't want to get acquired. We can build this shit ourselves, right? You have seen that so many times. I mean, it's it's very surprising that in this region, you're not seeing that many M&As, and yet you have so many competitors who are trying to build pretty much the same product, or they get, they're complementing each other's business model, and yet forget about M&A, they don't even collaborate with each other. Right. So I always think like, yes, the build versus buy thing is for sure there from a business perspective. But I feel like more startup founders can be a lot more open to working each other and, you know, working with your competitors in one way or the other. Uh, so I think that's also a mindset issue. Like people kind of feel like it's inferior for them to be kind of acquired and they would rather build this thing themselves. I mean, I understand there's a bit of ambition as well. And, and I kind of get that. But I still, I still feel like you could have like 10 times more M&A GCC already and they're not happening because I think I don't think founders are thinking the right way. You know, absolutely. Even as someone, you know, who, who saw the Pareto principle really play out in their own, their own portfolio. I mean, VCs in most markets with lots of active investment bankers trying to do deals would kind of look at that middle section of the portfolio and think like that's definite merger target or M&A target. And then the upper mm -hmm. echelon would be kind of the IPO target, where in reality, the upper echelons in in, uh, in in the region end up most likely becoming M&A targets. And then the middle just is kind of left to languish. So there is a, a cultural uh, stigma against acquisition. I agree with you. Um, but another question is, um, on what pretense would you push consolidation on these kinds of startups? So, I mean, you said it was a build versus buy decision for you. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, mm -hmm. but that's consolidation for market control, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct, correct. Yeah, I think I would use the classic analogy by either Bill Gurley or I think it was one of the VCs, which is basically if you are building a great product and you feel like you have a unique product and a unique way to actually become the dominant player, then maybe you stay independent. If you don't see that you have a unique way to become the to capture the big addressable market, then maybe go work with the other player and capture the market together, right? And that's the way I would think about consolidation. And especially in healthcare, you have so many players popping up. And especially one thing unique about healthcare is that a lot of these providers do not like working with different vendors because of the interoperability issues. Like if you're working in, let's say, in construction or maybe some other industry, it's very common for the organization to have seven different products from seven different vendors. In healthcare, that's happening, but that mindset is changing. They want to have a single vendor to provide them the entire suite of solutions because the data is siloed in different places and interoperability is a big challenge. So they would rather get one vendor that provides them six different solutions and they don't have to worry about data being siloed and rather work with one single vendor and not have regulatory issues and compliance issues and whatnot. So in healthcare, consolidation is like a no-brainer. Like you need to have as many vendors working together or providing as many different suite of solutions. And that's why Medi and Helium, I think, are long-term strategies to build a, a, a full, full-stack solution. We're a doctor booking an EMR right now. We're looking at revenue cycle management. We're looking at building an entire marketing CRM for providers as well. So we want to capture as many different aspects of the healthcare value chain. Now, this may or may not be true for different industries, uh, but in healthcare, it definitely is. And I definitely think in the next three to five years, you're just going to start seeing so many more and more consolidation, not just in GCC, but across the world. Agreed. Now, every time we have discussions about healthcare vendors, whether in a VC or investment banking or PE context, there's always the question of the regulatory aspect. I think people try to look at the GCC and think of it as like this monolithic block with respect to laws and regulation. And that's extremely false because, I mean, you know as well as I do that you drive two hours and an entirely different uh, set of rules applies. Um, so were you counseled at all on the regulatory aspects of this and what that means for you going forward in terms of growth and what you can and can't do in certain markets? 
Yeah, uh, it's interesting you're saying two hours is actually only maybe 30 minutes. If you think from Dubai, Sharjah, and Abu Dhabi, they all have their own laws when it comes to healthcare. They all have their own healthcare authority. So it's like three different countries within the same country, right? Uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say regulatory is a challenge. Their laws are a little bit different. I think the big issue that you have in GC is like a lot of these laws are not defined. There are a lot of gray areas. So people have this uh, misunderstanding of how the laws work. They kind of think like, okay, this, this is how it's done in the US or UK, and this is how it's going to be happening here, but it doesn't really happen. So I don't think regulatory challenges is a big issue right now. It's more of a gray area. I think Ministry of Health can take more of a proactive approach and try to clarify a lot of things to clear up the misunderstanding that's happening. But I don't think regulatory is a huge challenge at the moment. I mean, especially UAE is doing a fantastic job in building healthcare information exchange and forcing all the providers and vendors to collaborate with them in so many ways. Uh, but the other countries are also trying to change that. But I wouldn't say in GCC, where regulatory is a big hurdle or a big red, uh, you know, like a, like a you know hurdle at the moment, as you have in other more mature markets. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Um, uh, so just, just to be clear, it's it's not really regulatory. It's more of a compliance. And compliance is not a big difficult, right? You don't need any massive special regulatory license to actually operate. It's more like you have a little bit of these laws, which are a little bit vague. So you just have to comply with them, but they are not ridiculous. Like it's it, as long as you read them, you get a lawyer, you can kind of sort it out. So it's not a massive challenge. Right. Correct. And also, uh, you know, fixing your compliance issues in case there is ever found a fault is, is generally less... Uh, um let's just say right. less taxing and, and less troublesome to implement um if right. found later in the game um Absolutely. i have to ask like when, when speaking to people from outside the gcc region about tech in the gcc region i always like to bring up the f and b adoption curve in other words mm -hmm. you know, consumer consumer uptake of technology was very very fast with the f and b delivery world in the last like 10 years mm -hmm. um and uh enterprise uptake of technology is kind of showing well, it's showing somewhat the similar curve. And again, it's starting with F&B with respect to enterprise. Um, what in the health space has really shown um, the propensity to take up new technological solutions to establish problems in this space? Um, do you get the same kind of pushback from enterprise? Do you get people still uh, maybe professing a little bit of Ludditism when it comes to, to healthcare? And how do you, how do you uh, navigate that? Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, you know, I always say healthcare, health, when you look at the healthcare industry from the technology adoption curve, they're the laggards. They're pro probably the worst thing that you can do when it comes to adopting a new solution. Because when you're selling into healthcare, you know, they, they I mean, even if you're selling to a healthcare decision maker, which is a clinical director or the CEO or medical director, they may not be let's say a doctor, but they are very heavily influenced by doctors and how they make decisions. And they think in terms of risk from day one, right? Because in their lives, the way they're trained is like a risk is pretty much death, right? Or something ridiculously bad or a malpractice. So even though they're thinking from that perspective, it's just they put the same lens when they're making business decisions. So it's very difficult for them to adopt a new solution, new product. Uh, they want to make sure that 100 other companies are already using it. It's fully compliant. And it's very, very slow sales cycles, right? So in healthcare enterprise sales is, of course, the de facto way to break into it, but it just takes a very, very long time. And that's why you have these big companies like Cerner and Allscripts and Epic who have this ginormous, very well-paid enterprise sales team that, that has been trying to sell into big and big providers for three and four years for these massive sales cycles. And they get these massive sales contracts. And that's the only way you can break into healthcare. But yeah, the, it's very, very difficult to sell into healthcare. And it's a, it's a very common issue because you know they are very risk averse when it comes to adopting anything right you mentioned earlier that ego was a major obstacle 
um, when it comes to mergers and acquisitions in the region. Um, mm -hmm. I agree. Um, ego at the founder level is definitely that problem. But how about the mm -hmm. rest of the team? I mean, cultural failure also leads to failed mergers. Whereas in your case, it seems like the cultural fit was so perfect that it ended up closing the deal faster than it otherwise would. Um, can you describe what exactly that cultural cultural fit was and what post-merger integration is going to look like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think from a culture perspective is because internally as, as the executive team, uh, we were already looking at M&As uh, and not just M&As, we were looking at, okay, what is the what is the next phase for Medi? Like, how do we grow in the next thing? And we were all like, okay, we need to go into EMR. And so we, we, we already started building an EMR a few years ago and we launched a beta product and it did not go so well. And we realized, okay, we need to, we're just way out of our reach. There's like so much more to build that we're not doing a good job at it. So we were actively looking at other companies to either, you know, resell their EMR or partner with them. So even when we started talking to Helium in the beginning, it was not so much of an m and conversation. It was more like, okay, you have a great EMR product we can resell this product and do like some sort of a rev share, right? That was the extent of the conversation. It's only when we started talking so well and the teams got so good along, we're like, and the MA conversation kind of just came about and we started talking and, you know, we're like, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, I think that's probably the reason why it kind of uh, gelled together is just from a culture perspective, our strategy aligned quite well, the way we look at things, the way we do sales, the way we do operationalize, like even the way we have structured our respective teams is so similar that it was very easy to map which function will go where. Uh, and that really well uh, worked so well. Uh, and then, you know, the different people working in different organizations, everyone is super respectful and how they think about the market, the strategy, how they manage teams is just our values align quite well. If you look at both of our culture values, there's so much uh, com commonalities in that. So, you know, it just made sense. So far, the post-merger structure looks pretty well. We're just trying to sell each other's products in our respective market so that we can grow GC and Africa at the same time. Right. And eventually, I'm assuming there will be products that's, that would start basically at the very beginning by a joint effort of what was previously two separate teams. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I think the, so the idea is that right now, uh, Helium Health and Africa, they don't have a dock booking product. So we're right now localizing our product to actually long, launch it in Nigeria. So hopefully that's going to happen in Q1 of next year. And at the same time, we're already taking their EMR product and localizing it for Qatar and UAE. And we already we already started having conversations with our providers and just trying to get them to adopt. So hopefully in Q1, we're going to have live with some of the few customers already. So that's a strategy. And over time, we want to improve this product. We want to build newer products for our customers as well. Interesting. So one of the recurring themes of this podcast is the fact that Silicon Valley no longer has a monopoly on tech, whether that's within the United States or internationally. Um, so my brother and I, we spoke back and forth a number of times about this topic, but we theorized that the ultimate or, or maybe the first kind of emerging market bridge to emerge in the region would be between India and the GCC, just because, you know, decades of, of uh, cultural inter, uh, interchange and the number of uh, Indian workers, specifically in tech that are currently in the GCC. But having read the news of, uh, of Medi and Helium, um, I'm starting to question, is it potentially Africa? Like, is there something innate about the African tech ecosystem that makes it just a good uh, merger target or a good mix or a good, um, you know, kind of emerging market talent bridge with uh, the UAE? Like, what's the future there? 
Mm, uh, that, that, that's a, that's an interesting question. So uh, yeah, I, I I would be with you because you know the reason I, I mean India and you India and GCC would make a lot of sense because you have a whole you have a, you have quite a few Indians in GCC and you know they've been here for decades and decades. So it's kind of like second home from them. Uh, now what's unique about Africa? So I think the common trend that that I am seeing from Africa is like Africa is a huge market from an address from a TAM perspective, right? But the problem is is of course when it comes down to unit economics, the per capita spend is fairly low. So for helium to move into GCC. It was primarily that yes, they want to still keep growing Africa, but then when it comes to GCC, the per capita spending is much more, so you can kind of make higher revenues that you can then take and go back and invest in Africa. So that's a trend that you would probably see a lot of these companies from Nigeria either trying to expand further into South Africa because the per capita spend is increased, or they're going after Egypt or Kenya because of you know a little bit better uh, economics there as well. Now, would you see more coming into GCC? I do not know because I haven't seen that much companies. India would be very common because oh, you're already seeing so many companies in India. The founders are spending a significant percent of their time in, or in Dubai or making their HQ here to attract funding from international investors because, you know, it's mainly optics. Now, even in GCC itself, a lot of these founders kind of move to Dubai just to make them kind of perceive as an international company so they can attract VC funding from all across the world. Uh, so that trend would, would keep happening. Now, how much would that be happening from Africa? I do not know. Africa itself is a huge market. So if everyone is doing so well there, they would not be moving there. I mean, in Nigeria alone, you now have seven, eight different unicorns just by serving the Nigerian market because it's so big. Right. Uh, yeah. So I think, yes, you're going to see a lot more expansion within Africa. Now, would that come to GCC? I do not know. I haven't seen it. So I don't have a strong opinion on it. India is a no-brainer. That's going to keep happening. Yeah. I just imagine, you know, more transactions that look like what happened between um, Medi and Helium, kind of generating these uni the unit economics and the economies of scale necessary for capital markets transactions internationally. So if mm -hmm. if if companies from the region are going to eventually list on the New York Stock Exchange or Nasdaq, they kind of have to achieve the scale um, that is achieved by doing things similar to what you did, basically broadening mm -hmm. the scope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I mean I mean you also have Swivel that's doing a fantastic job with you know uh, going yeah. completely in different geographies and you know getting getting in Spain and getting in different countries. So it's pretty fantastic what they're doing as well. Yeah, I think I think my advice to a lot of these founders is like you know like when you're working on a startup, you kind of become very tunnel vision and you're looking at companies around you or you're looking at the companies in the same country or GCC, and you just need to scope like you know scope up like go beyond the country, go beyond the region, and look farther. Uh, and that requires a lot of soul searching. That requires a lot of talking to different people and trying to build up connections with them. And I think that's what kind of opens up doors. Absolutely. So, Haris, I wanted your opinion on something. Um, I've been looking at between a friend and I, we've been looking at our our investments in the U.S. Say in the last eighteen months or so, and I've realized that companies that die do not die from a lack of funding. I suspect that to be true outside the U.S. as well, just because of what's happening worldwide on a monetary basis. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> what what about recruiting? So most of the companies that I've seen, um, you know, ended up folding usually because they could not attract the proper talent. What does this transaction between Helium and Medi mean for your ability to recruit good talent between Africa and the Middle East? Yeah, I mean, so for sure. I mean, I mean, if you look at, uh, especially in GCC, and I think it's probably true in other parts of the world, but especially in GCC, is like recruiting is probably one of the biggest challenges. 
right after funding, if not, actually in some cases, it's even more issues than funding because you just cannot find really good talent within GCC, or if you do, you just cannot afford them. Uh, so with, with Helium Health, I think the big issue was that is like, you know, once you once we started having this merger, there are a lot of recruiting needs go away because now you already have talent in both the companies that kind of does the job that you don't really need to hire that many different people. And the second thing is that both our companies, one big aspect was that we both were remote first. So that meant that allowing us to hire people from pretty much anywhere across the world. Of course, we hire people who are like three, four hours away from us because of time zone issues. So, I mean, he, I mean, many with, without Helium, we're like 17, 18 people and we're from nine different countries. Helium is from five different countries. So now with, you know, remote first kind of opens up the barriers and, you know, we can kind of hire from different uh, geographies and don't have to really worry about having those people in the same country. So recruiting is not that big of a challenge for us because the big needs are already taken care of and the other, other roles we can kind of hire from, you know, outside the country yeah i mean you remember as well as i do if you had mentioned like two remote first companies merging uh, on two different continents just uh, i don't know like two years ago we would have been laughed out of the room <laughs> yeah exactly i mean we were still i mean you know i i would say like i think even a few years ago actually i mean we've been remote first for quite some time and even when we go sell into healthcare a lot of people would ask us like okay so how big is your company how big is your team 30 people 40 people they're all based in doha and we would tell them yes Right. Because we don't want to tell them remote because they because that would kind of question us, question our credibility. Uh, so and that's the perception people have. They think like you need to have huge teams. They all need to be in your office and you need to be managing them. This remote culture still is not there and especially not in healthcare. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, healthcare generally is not a field where people think of people working remote, right? Because, you know, anything yeah. in a clinical setting is happening in the same room. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but, you know, in a healthcare, there's not just clinical, there's so much administration work that's happening in the back office that you really don't need people to be in the clinics for that. Right. And of course, right. a lot of that probably moved to remote when the pandemic happened. But I mean, you know, is this the trust issue and how you manage people? They probably brought them back in. Like a lot of the hospital decision makers that I know, uh, you know, last year, they were all at home and we were having Zoom calls, but now they're all back in the office, uh, you know, but yeah, so, so the, so the pandemic did not change them in a meaningful way that it has changed people in consulting. Like for instance, my friends at PwC and KPMG and McKinsey, now they get to work remotely for, I don't know, big chunk of their weeks. Uh, but that change has, like, this was not a good disruption for healthcare. It was a good disruption for consulting and maybe other industries. But in healthcare, they're, they're already back to their same routine and how they operate. Right. Well, I mean, telecommunications is the primary reason people in the service sector can now work uh, comfortably remotely. Sooner or later, I don't know, maybe there's another pandemic in 50 years and we've perfected kind of remote robotics and then I can get a remote dentist. 50 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Medi remote dentistry. What's the uh, timeline on that? I'll let you know once we figure it out. Excellent. I'm more than happy to help, but I don't want to be the test subject. Sure. If you, I mean, you, you, can, you can write the seat check for that. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Um, so I have to ask, I want to go back to the moment that you went to your board with the idea of this merger. Um, what were the first benefits that came to mind for them? And I'm assuming this would be informed by you know their prior experiences and prior jobs, really. So the investment banker is probably going to think, oh, this is the scale necessary for exit. And the operator is going to think, oh, this is going to make recruiting much easier. But I mean, what, what specifically stood out in your early conversations with them? Yeah, that's a good question. So I do not. So good thing is like we do not have investment bankers on our board, so that's good. Uh, Congratulations. So I think that, 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I think the first, so the first, I think the I think the benefit that we saw was that uh, immediately all the boards were like, oh, this is fantastic because it ginormously increases your addressable market. You know, because if you look at it, like we operate in Qatar and you you combine their populations, you're talking about 13, 14 million, and I'm pushing it at the moment. You make it entire GC, that's 47 to 50 million. Nigeria alone is more than 200 million, right? So you're your adjustable market just increases massively. And, you know, helium health is going after entire Africa. They're already in six different countries in Africa alone. So, you know, we were thinking like, okay, the product that we're building right now, it's touching the lives of potentially 10, 13 million people. Now you can touch lives of five, 600 million people, even more if you really push it, right? So that was like something that really changed our perspective because, you know, even if you become the dominant player in the entire GCC, you still cannot touch that many lives. So that just massively changed everything. Second thing, they were looking at from an exposure perspective. We're like, okay, you're like, you completely focus on, uh, in Qatar and UAE. And then when pandemic happened, our business was completely disrupted. We, our revenues were down more than 50, 60%. And it took us a while to get back up. So that was a big risk exposure. So now they're like, okay, and now you're going to be targeting the completely different geography. So it just gives us more exposure to different geography that you would not have done by yourself before. So that really changed the game. And third thing, which is the most important, was like, we always thought of was like, how do we touch more stakeholders on, in the healthcare value chain, right? Like EMR is something we definitely wanted to get into, and we've already been thinking about it, but raising funding in this environment was fairly difficult, and it requires a lot of expertise. So Helium coming in on that just was like a completely no-brainer, and we looked at the product. It was a YC company. They had raised a fair, like fair amount of funding. The team was extremely strong, so that just made like a no-brainer on that. But yeah, so convincing my board on Helium was fairly easy, to be honest. Like It was like a very, very easy conversation to have. And when you would table this first with the board, this was like during the depth of the pandemic, the first wave, extreme uncertainty? Uh, no, it was the second wave. Actually, this happened this year. So we were talking to our board in June, July, maybe August, uh, during summer. Yeah, as I said, the, the deal came through very quickly because we were talking to Helium before maybe earlier in the year, maybe Feb, March, and we were talking about, you know, building, bringing their EMR here. And then everyone was kind of busy in Q2. And then, you know, in summer, when we started having conversation, it kind of moved into let's have an MA fairly quickly. And then we started having conversations. And then, you know, from there where we are. Interesting. So you mentioned, you know, kind of the earlier um, uh, plans for the post-merger period of this deal, like, you know, it's bringing EMR to the GCC, bringing Telemed to Africa. Um, one thing I realized is Helium does have a credit component. So Helium credit. And mm -hmm. one of the massive trends that I'm seeing in the market, basically worldwide, is trying to insert fintech into as many verticals as possible. Um, mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on how you see fintech uh, and you know Helium credit kind of playing out in your long-term plans? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So yeah, uh, healthcare financing is a big, big issue in Africa, and especially. So one thing about Niger, one thing about Helium in Nigeria is that right now, Medi in GCC, we only predominantly, not predominantly, we only work with the private sector. In, in in Nigeria, they also work with public sector. So a lot of these public sector hospitals are not funded very well, and they have to go take loans from uh, governments and everything, and you know banks. And it's a very difficult issue for them to get loans on time and everything. So healthcare financing is probably the biggest issue when it comes to healthcare in Nigeria. So uh, Helium kind of acts like a bank that it gives them loans with uh, you know. Uh, with with pretty much very low interest rate, they don't necessarily have to have that much collateral because you know once you're working with EMR, you have very good visibility into their financing and accounting, so you can kind of see the predictability in the cash flow. So the Helium, this allows Helium to give healthcare, uh, you know, uh, clinics very instant loans. So 
in clinics can go on a product, uh, enter their information, and within two or three days, their loan is approved and it's actually sent to their bank account. So that's how fast they can issue loans from that. And that's probably one of the biggest revenue drivers at the moment in the company. And it actually helps build good relationship with the providers that gives us leverage to actually sell more products to them. Uh, so that's what's doing pretty well. And you know that's where healthcare uh, helium credit is coming in. We're looking at that aspect in GCC as well. There is a little bit of a need for that, but you know, the loan value is going to be significantly higher and it's for a little bit of different purposes. Uh, okay, again, there's going to be a bunch of regulatory issues with that, that that we're trying to tackle, but in Africa, it's doing extremely well. Africa has been extremely open to fintech, even on the regulatory side, even if huh. they're not adopting rules that are pro-fintech, they're at the very least staying out. <laughs> and Absolutely. that, I mean, that is allowing it to flourish. I mean, you look at Paystack uh, in Nigeria that got acquired by Stripe, and then you have Chipper yeah. Cash that is now becoming the transfer wise or Flutterwave. For, yeah, Flutterwaves as well. So, you know, all those things are happening. And they're all predominantly happening from Nigeria alone. Uh, you know, so yeah, as you said, Africa has been fairly open to, uh, you know, online payments and fintech and whatnot. Yeah. And crypto, that's starting to pick up as well. That's interesting. But, <laughs> Absolutely, so. yes. So, I mean, you're scoring the creditworthiness of the clinic, which generally speaking, do not have very high failure rates due to a lack of business. And I'm assuming that's true mm -hmm. in a lot of regions. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any, is there a plan to take on a kind of individual uh, consumer credit? Um, would you be willing to finance, say, uh, medical procedures for individuals? And if so, like, how do you score creditworthiness across so many different countries with different data available? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, we thought about it, but again, we haven't really looked properly into it. But as you said, there's there's a huge challenge in figuring that out. Um, so, you know, I don't have an answer to that for now. We're mainly focused on working with, uh, you know, doing credit worthiness of clinics for individuals is a bit of a challenge, but there is definitely need for it. And especially when it comes to, I mean, I think a company that is doing like, you know, BNPL would be much more suited to do this thing rather than we doing it. And we might move into the space eventually, but for now we don't have plans for that. Okay. Well, if you like, maybe offline, I can introduce you to someone who can kind of help you with the credit worthiness aspect. Fantastic. I'll, I'll pay you for that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, see, I could have billed them earlier and, and given them a, a sponsorship on this episode, but I guess it's too late for that. <laughs> yeah. You can always still go reach out to them, you know, get, get, get the sponsorship done and then, then, then launch, then, uh, then release this episode. Yeah, that's true. Then again, this has to go out Thursday and it's currently on a Sunday, but you know what? Challenge accepted. Um, so one of the things I've realized about expanding fintech offerings, um, healthcare or otherwise in, in Africa um, is, you know, the absence of data and the fact that, you know, different data from different credit bureaus, and we call them credit bureaus very lightly because the way they operate is extremely different from credit bureaus, say in mm -hmm. Europe or the US, where they have very tight definitions for certain things. Um, the idea that you have a single API to ping and get all the data you have is farcical. It's not going to happen. You have to build your own models internally. Mm -hmm. um, and I assume given the data that you accumulate just as a part of operating as you do now uh, without the fintech component um, on the consumer level, um, you're definitely going to be generating data internally that's going to help you score credit worthiness, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of data, I mean, you know, fintech is another fintech is one angle, but the other angle, I think, from a long term perspective, is mainly the EMR data and working with pharmaceutical companies for clinical trials. And I think that's going to be the long term goal as Helium organization to look into it because we already have so much. We already have pharmaceutical companies approaching us because they need longitudinal data on patients, and you know, doing clinical trials with pharmaceutical companies, helping them build drugs, is going to be another avenue for us to look at. 
Uh, so, you know, I think in the long term, that's what's going to happen. And if you look at it from a data points perspective, I mean, when, you, when you're looking at EMR data, you have like so many data points on a patient and, and healthcare data is probably the most valuable data, even more than fintech data, right? Even more than, you know, banking data and whatnot. So, you know, there's like a big avenue for us to look at uh, in the next uh, four to five years. Right. I mean, a lot of the data analytics being built for um, people in the clinical space really is just a matter of internal financial management. But I realize, you know, helium, helium, doc, helium docs, excuse me, also has an analytics component. And that's, I mean, analytics can expand uh, enormously just in the coming years, given the data that's available now because of the uh, increase in, in, you know, B2B enterprise software. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's why we have a data solutions team as well. And we're just trying to build up an entire business vertical just around that in the next few years to monetize through it. Interesting. And how does privacy really play into that? Again, because we're working with a patchwork of laws across a number of different countries and even Emirates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, in Africa, it's still a bit vague. I think they have a very strong legal and compliance team. So they're taking to that, of course, uh, consent through patient. And I think a lot of the patients are definitely open to that uh, because, you know, it, at the end of the day, it kind of changes lives of different people and they're trying to contribute to that project. So it makes sense. So, you know, it's always consent. We do not, I don't think we're using the data without informing them. Uh, but again, at this moment, I don't think anything is happening at this moment. We're just aggregating and cleaning up the data and just trying to build up like what kind of capabilities that this data will allow us to do. So I think this is more of a long-term bet that we're looking at yeah um you know we had an we had a um an interview recently with a friend of mine uh, who invests out of san francisco um and uh, he mentioned that he's very very bullish on billings just as a as a sector uh, as an investment mm-hmm. thesis mainly because if you make payment easier it tends to grow the size of the economy just by a function of being there by virtue of being there mm-hmm. um helium has also made a name for itself in the billing space um, what mm-hmm. are the changes that can now be made with uh, Medi on board as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so revenue cycle management is a big, big issue in GCC, and especially during pandemic, it kind of destroyed the entire. I mean, I, healthcare. I mean, uh, I think and actually I believe strongly is like went to pretty much a recession, and it still hasn't really recovered well from that. So I don't know how much you know about it. So in healthcare, uh, it it takes anywhere between sixty to ninety days in general for healthcare providers to get the money back from health insurers. Post during pandemic, it went up to 150 days, 170 days. So that really stretched their credit cycle from that. And uh, during the pandemic, there were a lot of clinics that pretty much went bankrupt. They were up for sale, shut down for good. So that happened quite a bit, especially in Dubai. Uh, so, you know, so getting so getting revenue back from health insurers is a huge, huge challenge for uh, healthcare providers. So our CM tools definitely help for that. And that is what we're looking at at the moment. Uh, the billing solution that you are looking at in Nigeria is slightly different from revenue cycle management. That's more of a way for healthcare providers to collect money from patients. So it's like, let's say a patient came in for a surgery and uh, it's it's a big amount that patient cannot pay. So that tools allows them to create instant payment plans that they can send to the patients, allow patients to do online payments through links, uh, SMS and whatnot. So those are the billing solutions that they have, but that's very different from a revenue cycle management tool that we are thinking of building for GCC that kind of connects to insurer, pro, insurer companies portals and works with healthcare information exchange and whatnot. There are multiple players in this space as well, but with our EMR strength that we have, this is something we can plug into our EMR solution to actually make it even more stronger. So that that's something we're looking at at the moment. Interesting. So it's the APIification of health tech in the Middle East and Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which again is the same thing that happened that happened to fintech again also in those regions. Um, but mm-hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned you know this uh, it was a healthcare recession during COVID because there is this um, misinformed perception that 
uh, healthcare did extremely well in light of COVID because this was, you know, a healthcare emergency worldwide. When in reality, all it did was it, it shut down all non-essential services in the space. Um, and mm-hmm. so there was this massive crunch and all these clinics that ran into issues and, and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. So as we emerge from this, A, w- would you say, just given the data you have internally that, you know, we have kindly, we have finally kind of gone over the hump and things are starting to get better now? Definitely. I think we've definitely gone over the hump and things are definitely getting better. Uh, so I think there are pros and cons to both things. So during pandemic, when it happened, as you said, a lot of the non-essential, non-essential things went away and a lot of these clinics started doing telemedicine. But telemedicine in GCC is not a huge revenue driver, right? So yes, so I think what they did is like it kind of opened the eyes of healthcare providers and realizes that, okay, we're not just a care provider, right? Patients are not going to come to us just because we have a good doctor. We have to enhance their patient experience to make sure they come back to us, they retain us, they tell their friends and family about it. So telemedicine was a good driver for that and kind of gave them an avenue to still speak to their patient or still providing a bit of care remotely, right? So yes, we're definitely over the hump. Things have gone back to normal. But the way GCC, in, in, in especially in GCC, it happens is like you definitely need the patient to come in so you can, you know, kind of build them for labs and other things and trying to make uh, revenue through that. So those are the limitations that you cannot do over telemedicine. So, you know, things have gone back to normal and a lot of these healthcare providers are pushing patients to come back to the clinic. So now they're back to their same way of doing things. But, you know, the good thing is happening is like now they're building up their products. They're investing heavily in their websites to allow online booking capabilities. They're allowing, they're opening up telemedicine. They're working with health insurers to make sure telemedicine is reimbursed or covered by direct billing and whatnot. They're opening up their mobile apps to make sure they can link directly to their calendars. They're enhancing their EMR. So a lot of these good disruptions are happening, which is kind of making them think that technology is not something they can keep ignoring or use the bare minimum of it. They need to be at the forefront of it. So that was a good aspect of the pandemic that kind of changed their mind towards it. Of course, the bad side is like there was a massive drop in revenues for them that they're still struggling to come back to it. Yeah, you know, the more I speak to people in different sectors, the more I hear stories of how behavior has definitively changed as a result of the pandemic. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. health tech is no exception. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to technology, they're now a little bit more receptive towards it, right? Mm -hmm. They're still back with their same routine and it's going to take maybe another pandemic to really change the game forever. Uh, But, you know, but it's a good thing. I think if the pandemic was not happening, I don't think our M&A would be happening because as soon as the pandemic happened, we saw that the appetite for an EMR, for a better product, for a better tech solution went up massively. Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, I tell people that there was always one enterprise stack across the GCC and Africa as well. And it was, it had been there for years. It's just nobody acknowledged it, which is WhatsApp. Everything happened on WhatsApp. And I think when the pandemic finally happened, they realized that, hey, WhatsApp is not exactly the ideal tool to run an enterprise. It kind of opened up uh, or, you know, kind of, you know, it, it confirmed that there was actually an appetite for true enterprise software and not WhatsApp. Also, everyone's, you know, personal medical information being on somebody's WhatsApp is kind of horrifying as a prospect. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's exactly the point, right? So, you know, when we talk to the CIOs of these uh, hospitals and they tell us like compliance and everything, I'm like, do you know what your reception is and everyone are doing? You're sending stuff over WhatsApp and everything. And this is uh, way before when WhatsApp was even encrypted, right? Encryption happened maybe two, three years ago. But even before yeah. that, a lot of this stuff was being shared actively over WhatsApp or over email or over text or whatnot. Yeah, you know, it, it could have been like an episode of House of Cards with somebody being massively compromised and blackmailed or, or something. Just like just to think of what uh, the average reception employee at my doctor's office knows about me uh, on their phone. It's yeah, it's a little yeah. scary. No, I'm pretty sure uh, there must have been incidents that have happened, but we just don't know about it. 
you know, I, I'm I'm 100% certain. There's there's no way it did not happen. There's no way you had a security gap that huge with, uh, uh, you know, no major security events. Um, yeah. But that's probably a separate podcast, like one of the cyber ones. Anyhow, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, so I, I'm assuming that the combined helium medi is not uh, finally done with investors. I'm assuming there will be more capital raised in the future. Um, and to the listeners, I have no inside information. I'm kind of proposing this for the first time. So I wanted to ask you, um, what has been the perception of local in terms of African and GCC investors and international investors of this new uh, entity now that it's post-merger? Um, how do they see it? Do they do they do they kind of receive it better? Do they suppose? I mean, or do they uh, see its prospects as having improved? How has that changed the discussions you're having with respect to like raising capital in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. So, as, as a company, we're definitely raising a new round of funding. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it definitely uh, expedited a lot of these conversations because you know it, it's 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 not the norm that you see a series B level, series A level company be doing M and A's. So that was something more of an eye opener for a lot of the VCs across the world because we're not just raising money from GCC; we're raising it from pretty much from Bali, from New York, from Canada. From uh, from GCC as well, right? So yeah, a lot of them were like massively kind of changed their mind, and they reacted the same way. Like a company in Africa looking acquiring a company in GCC, and how the product verticals kind of overlap, and you know they, they complement each other and uh, like serving a address, different addressable market. So it really put the ball in our favor, and actually it's expediting it quite well. So we're hoping maybe in early Q one we will have a round close. Interesting, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. So. I mean, look, as an investor, when I hear of early M&A, like pre-Series B M&A, it's usually one of two reasons. Either it's M&A to survive, in other words, things are kind of going sideways, not so great, or it's M&A to thrive, which is um, you're here to build uh, something that can absolutely definitively kill your competition and really establish a major footprint. And I think it's safe to say that you're in the second bucket. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, but but at the same time, I I don't want to be I don't want to be like BSing about it for sure. COVID definitely impacted us quite a bit, right? It took us a while to come back to revenue. So you know, we were not we were not dying for sure. But we just looked at it as like, what is the next phase for the growth? And we we're like, okay, we definitely need to get into EMR or another product offering from an enterprise side that we do not have at the moment because there is a limit to what you can do at doctor bookings level, right? That's a good way to get into the get into the providers help them build a relationship with them. So our next phase was like, either we go after another market and launch Docker bookings them, or we go serve our existing customers and give them another product for that. And the latter made a lot more sense. And we're like, okay, in order to get into EMR, can we do it? So then the conversation of buy and build came into it. And that's why the MA happened. Uh, so, you know, that's how we came to it from that perspective. But for sure, uh, you know, the pandemic was pretty bad for the business. I'm, I mean, you know, it, it, we definitely our own question of survival was in there. I mean, we were thinking of, you know, we might not make it, but thankfully we got through it and we're now way higher than our pre-COVID numbers. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's universally agreed that COVID was bad for business unless you were selling like masks and gloves. But, you know, there's, I think most investors would agree that there's a distinct difference between systemic and idiosyncratic risk. Whereas like, you know, what's the risk we take on by investing in this founder who possibly, you know, can't execute uh, versus the risk of just having been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And for COVID, that was pretty much planet Earth. We're being in the wrong place in the wrong time. Um <laughs> So uh, for for now the first of all what what is the new heal uh, sorry what is the new merged entity called the helium medi or are you yeah, maintaining so, two separate brands No we're not, so basically what we're doing is that medi is now called helium doc so just to go with the the naming methodology of all the other products because helium has helium emr helium pay helium credit and then helium doc so the new name of medi is helium doc Interesting 
Also, do you know the, the origin of, of uh, the name helium? Because all I can think of is that gas that the dentist used to give me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I do not know. I, 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 think, I, think, I think they used to have some other name and uh, they, they had some issues with it because there was some other big health tech company had a similar name. So they changed it to this. But now why did they change it to this? I actually do not remember. I should know the answer to this thing, but I do not know. Yeah, you know, I think uh, uh, it's not a bad name. I like it. It's just because, you know, helium kind of evokes uh, happy, fun, again, laughing gas memories. So why not? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to you. It reminds you that to me, helium reminds me of this uh, new crypto project that's happening and they're trying to build this decentralized internet and they're pulling these pods all across the world. So it's interesting. I mean, you just want to Google helium. And I think that's yeah. the first thing that comes up. Well, I mean, I actually, I thought of the crypto one and, you know, we have this running <laughs> joke on this podcast that no matter how long we keep talking sooner or later, somebody's going to mention crypto or Web3. Um, so there's the crypto one and there's also the, the nuclear fusion, uh, startup that we covered, uh, the one that was funded by Sam Altman, uh, that, that episode is maybe like a month old or something. Um, so yeah, people like helium, I guess. Um, I have to ask this, like, you know, again, we're, we're very soon post merger. This is not a five, 10 year old merger yet. And this was definitively a very interesting, and I would argue successful bridge between developed market, developing markets. Um, is there any scenario that you foresee um, that would mean that this then kind of bridges out into a developed market, maybe a, a European market. Would it be? Would there be reception for it in, say, the US, Canada? I don't know. I mean, honestly, we, we, we haven't looked into those markets at the moment. You already have uh, different players trying to tackle that. I think Africa and GCC is going to keep us busy for quite some time for us to even think of other markets. Yeah. I mean, still, you're, we're nowhere near full market saturation, correct? Absolutely, absolutely, exactly. I mean, I mean, I mean, in Africa, I don't think we have even touched 05 percent of the market, even 0.1 percent of the market, to be honest, from that perspective. So, you know, we just have so much room to grow. I mean, just Nigeria alone is just a humongous market that we're just going to be busy with that. But we already have so much inbound pull from Kenya and uh, other markets that you know we're we're just trying to expand into those things. So, I think Africa and GCC is going to be quite, is going to keep us busy for the next three, four years, if not more, before us to even think of other markets. Yeah, I agree. Um, I had a question for you as an operator. This one is slightly more on the financial side, but as an operator with operations in Nigeria, and I'm assuming Egypt at some point, possibly if you're trying to capture the the, the larger markets in in mm -hmm. Africa. Um, so, look, Nigeria and Egypt. Like, I've had the pleasure of of speaking to and working with people who you know are active day and night in those markets. I've come to the I've come to the conclusion that a um, there is absolutely fantastic talent in these markets that is still untapped despite its increasing utilization. Uh, B, the huge population uh, definitely makes up for the smaller ticket risk, as, like you mentioned. Um, but the one ha question hanging overhead from the financial side of things is what about the inflation risk? Um, so, you know, in Nigerian Naira inflation, um, there was an inflationary episode a little while ago with the Egyptian pound. How does that really factor into your decision making as an operator? Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I do not have that much visibility to it because I do not operate in Nigeria. I mean, you know, sometimes when you go to Nigeria, you kind of realize like how fortunate we are to live in GCC where, you know, everything is kind of packed to the USD. So inflation and devaluation of your currency is not something you have to really think about. And I think uh, so I think one way helium is counteracting that is the healthcare financing product. A lot of these loans are issued in USD, and that's one of the big revenue drivers. Second thing, a lot of these sales contracts are also moving into USD, so we're trying to contract with that as well. And the third thing is that probably because we have different business products 
so that kind of helps us, you know, de-risk if one business line is not doing so well. So it doesn't really affect us that much. Uh, and then, you know, we're actively expanding into different geographies to counteract the risk. I think moving into GCC is one big way for us to, as a helium, to not be dependent on Naira as the biggest revenue drivers and move into non-Naira revenue at the moment. So that's one way of doing it. But yeah, that's, but but uh, uh, even despite doing all these efforts, that's definitely one of the biggest risks company has in terms of currency being devalued. So, you know, your revenue kind of keeps going up in Naira, but, but in USD, it doesn't look that good. So that's why we're actively looking into expanding into outside of Nigeria. Right. You know, the other thing I've seen, I've seen is, you know, people in emerging markets will even set up their own employees with like a Cyprus bank account and guaranteed to pay them in dollar, which in and of itself is a massive draw for you know an economy suffering 20% inflation. Even where I am right now in Turkey, by the way, inflation has gone absolutely crazy. I don't know if you follow the financial oh, yeah. news. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's weird because like, you know, you're living the textbook example of kind of going down to the corner store and look, oh, bread is more expensive than a couple of days ago. Like, that's, hmm, that's for real, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my investors was saying is like they were looking at Turkey pretty actively and they were telling me that how every company in Turkey has to grow the revenue at least 40, 50 percent just to stand still and come when it compared to USD. Right. Which is such, so yeah. horrible. It's like you're just growing so massively. But still, when you compare to USD, just it's just a flat line. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you have growth where like, you know, in multiples terms kind of puts you at uh, you know, 50 to a hundred times forward revenue. If you were raising in the States and if you were accomplishing that in dollars and here, it's just like, man, okay, you're sideways. What next? It's, uh, yeah. Kind of yeah, demoralizing for the founders. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. But then again, you know, that's, that's part of operating in an emerging market is, uh, you end up working in multiple markets and hardly ever only one market. So you take on a number of currency risks and yeah, you try to dollarize as much as possible. Uh, maybe in the future you can Bitcoinize as much as possible, but that's a separate discussion again. So, <laughs> Yeah. Anyhow, uh, Haras, it, it was an absolute pleasure. I love learning more about your business and about this merger and about future prospects. I think it's excellent what's happening. I, I think it sets an excellent, um, uh, excellent foundation for uh, kind of you know future plans and future uh, discussions with uh, founders and investors. Like uh, the, the precedent this is setting um, is is ex is excellent for an emerging market. I, I think if we see tons and tons more deals like this in the, in the years coming. Um, the GCC and Africa are going to look like very, very different places for the startup ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Aziz. Have a nice day. You as well. Take care. <laughs>